We are uh, going to be doing our fourth lesson in this series, also the final lesson in the series, also the final lesson in Equipping Hour this summer, unless something changes. So uh, we'll be concluding our series on meeting with God this morning, and if I were going to hazard to summarize what we've kind of seen and talked through Uh, these last couple of weeks. This series is really on the means by which we maintain, enjoy an active, healthy, personal relationship with God. God always intended us to have such a relationship with him. The folly and terribleness of sin is that we have replaced God, the greatest and best thing, with broken cisterns that cannot hold water. When we were redeemed, when we were saved, the goal of what God did can be fairly summarized. What God is doing now in our lives is the ending of our suppression of the truth, the end of our refusal to know and love and pursue God, the end of our replacing of him with other things, and the restoration of us to the type of fellowship and relationship that we were always intended to have from the beginning. And in the first two weeks of this course, we have looked at one of the means in which we do this, namely the Word of God and how we can incorporate that into our lives to have a a life that's saturated by the Word of God in pursuit of knowledge and relationship with our Father. And last week, we also saw, I think, how prayer can be used to that same end by by means of fellowship and communion. And this week, we're going to be looking at prayer one more time, although in a very different way. Um, Rather than focusing on prayer in the context of fellowship and communion, we're going to talk about prayer in the context of the things that we can get wrong about it. Um, Last week, I mentioned that, you know, there's 141 plus, depending on your translation, instances of the word pray or prayer in the New Testament to say nothing of other examples of prayer or other words used. Prayer in Christianity is meant to be, you, you know, prayer in Christianity is ubiquitous. They're, they're meant to go hand in hand. A prayerless Christian is an oxymoron. We're supposed to be people who engage in prayer. But one of the oddities in general is that we tend to not talk so much about the mechanics or the how of prayer. And because of that, sometimes error can kind of creep into our practice unaware. And so this week, we're going to spend some time focusing on some common pitfalls, common issues, common misconceptions or or bad practices, if you were, in the subject of prayer. Uh, Our goal is to sort of uh, dust off the cobwebs, uh, you know, refresh things, walk away with a renewed um, appreciation, but also uh, zeal and diligence as we communicate with our Father. Um, And as we do that, before we do that, we should probably ask his time uh, a blessing on our morning. So let's do that now. Father, we thank you for the privilege that it is to be able to pray to you on the basis of the life and death and resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for the grace that it is to be able to be refreshed on this subject. I pray that you would open up hearts and minds, that we would be receptive and honest with ourselves, and we would see the the, the errors, if any, that have permeated our our prayer life, that we would accordingly be uh, repentful and encouraged as we pursue a a cleaner, healthier prayer life, Father. And we ask you for your your blessing on this morning. Uh, Please do all of these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
All right, so what are we going to do? How are we going to do it? This is intended to be a very practical class. Think of this as application, an hour's worth of application almost. Um, if you have a handout, hopefully everyone has a handout. The majority of this class is really just going through these errors. There are seven of them, and it's a pretty simple exercise. We're going to name the error. We're going to define the error. We're going to talk a little bit about what it is so we're all on the same page, and then we're going to give examples of the error in practice. And that is where I am going to plead for help. Um, this could be uh, an hour of me standing up here confessing all of my prayer foibles in each of these categories, um, but it would be awesome. Awesome, uh, at the appropriate time for folks to sort of chime in on how you see this error impacting your prayer life or even just examples uh, you've, you've come across over the years of it um, for a couple of reasons. One, to avoid me just being the only one confessing, um, but also second and probably more importantly, my manifestation, uh, for example, of legalism may not be yours but yours may resonate much more with somebody else in the room and by kind of having a, a plethora of examples of how we can mess this up a little bit, um, it may help spur folks to say, oh my gosh, that is me, I am doing that, as opposed to what I'm saying, you know, passing through or passing over someone's head. So if you can, if you can help, that would be phenomenal. Obviously, I'll tee the conversations up. Um, and I do want to throw out one more plea for help and, and a slight disclaimer these are all real errors and issues, but some of them don't have pithy little terms that describe them, and so I've had to make a few up. Um, uh, it may just be ignorance on my part as to what they're actually called, so if you know them by a different name, also at the appropriate time might be helpful to raise your hand and say, that is X, because it may help uh, folks make associations. But that's what we're going to do. We're literally going to spend the time just kind of walking through each one of these errors. Does that make sense? Any questions? Good. Okay. Let's do that then. All right. So our first issue, our first error, the first way we can uh, mess up prayer is by the insertion of unnecessary rules, traditions, and superstitions. The insertion of unnecessary rules, traditions, and superstitions. I trust that we all know what a rule and a tradition is, but it might be worth defining a superstition. A superstition is an unjustified belief that if we do or don't do something, there is a certain supernaturally caused result. And I think the, my favorite example and probably the best known example is the sports fan who believes that their socks contribute to their team's winning, right? Like, you know, you wear your special magical socks on Sunday and your team wins the game. You don't wear them. Your wife washes them. The team does poorly. I mean, there's an unjustified belief that the socks have any relevance whatsoever to that sports team winning the game. Um, and, and oftentimes, you know, superstitions, just to sort of, again, ident identification, there's a fear element to them. So you may even recognize you're being silly, but there's a sort of like, ooh, if I don't do it, is something bad going to happen? You're, there's a nervousness, a fear, or a guilt element that usually attaches to superstitions. Um, we see all sorts of examples of all of these things throughout the New Testament and the Old Testament, for that matter. In terms of rules and traditions, the, the poster child for this, of course, are the Pharisees who made up rules about the law to stop people from breaking the law. Um, rules, in some cases, that actually circumvented the law in the first place. Um, these rules quickly became tradition and quickly became obligations imposed on folks. 
Um, and then in terms of superstitions, one example is in 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And I'm, I'm curious if I can get a, a volunteer to read that. 1 Samuel chapter 4. Gary. It's uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 to 3. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They encamped in uh, Abbenazar. Ab- and the Philistines encamped in Aphek. The Philistines drew up a line in line against Israel. When the battle spread, Israel was defeated because the Philistines, before the Philistines, who killed uh, who killed about four thousand men on the field of battle. And when the people came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may uh, come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So in this example, we have Israel thinking it is the Ark that saves. It is the ark that causes their victory, not God. The ark is their magical pair of socks. You're losing the battle, bring out the magical box and it will save you. There is a a, a disassociation that's happening in their heads and their minds. Uh, That's nonsense. Obviously, the ark doesn't save. God does. Um, But it's an example of how we see sort of a superstitious approach to things impact um, folks' lives. And if we're not careful, we can see rules and traditions and superstitions permeate our prayer lives as well. Um, a couple of examples before I ask you for help. Um, I've said this before in a different context, and uh, I did get his permission, but my, uh, my son, you know, he, he has this, this, this deep-rooted belief, or at least he did for a while, that if you do not end a prayer with the words, in Jesus' name, amen, it invalidates your prayer. It's like you didn't pray at all. Like you just, you just, you just, you just hit the cancel button essentially. Um, and it's funny too. I mean, I, I feel a certain discomfort if I don't end a prayer with those words. I don't know if you feel the same way. Um, it's like I, I do, you know, hit a cancel button. Um, and it's a silly example, but it's a it's a good example of the type of thing that we're talking about here. Um, early on, when I was a believer. I'm sorry, still a believer. Early on when I was a new believer, I should say, um, I had this, this deep-rooted belief that you could not interrupt a prayer. If, if I started praying and someone came and talked to me, I had to completely ignore them. Interrupting a prayer was just a, it was, it was a rule I'd set. I don't know why I felt this way, but it was like I, almost, almost sin-esque if I had to interrupt something. And so that rule led me to really, if there was any chance of interruption, not pray. I would go to a bathroom if I was at work, or I would you know, go to a car, or something along those lines if I was going to pray. But I would never pray where there were people for fear that someone might interrupt me and I'd have to tell them to stop. It's a completely self-imposed rule that impacted my prayer life in a relatively negative way. So as an example of how these rules and traditions and superstitions can impact how we pray. So this is my first plea to help for you all. Who else has silly rules or superstitions or traditions that they have seen creep into their prayer life? Um, if anyone's willing to share. Yes, Jerry. Well, sometimes um, I'll think if I don't have a lot of time, you know, I, like, oh, this was too short, or, okay. you know, I don't have a half hour to pray. So, it, you know, maybe is this 
am I just you know making this less of a priority because I gave it about five minutes? Yeah, you yeah. know, and that's stupid. You know, I don't know, but uh, so I. That's a good point. Yeah, there's some there's some really great, very short prayers in the New Testament. There's no minimum prescribed period, and you know any 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 you know indication to the contrary is is not fair. Um, others, good example. Wilson, um, when I was in high school and even like in college, uh, in our youth group and in college ministries, we would always have music playing during prayer time. <laughs> so it was weird for me to have no music, okay. or even for the lights to be on, we always turn the lights <laughs> low and, and dim the lights down for kind of a, the right moment, if you will, so That's not anymore. <laughs> That's a good example. There is no biblical prayer mood that one must set with uh, ambiance. That's a, it's a really good point. Other, uh, yeah. So... I still like to do this, and so I'm kind of like, but um, I make my sons take their hats off while we're praying, and yeah. I think that it's like, you know, it's like it's a sign of respect, but they may be respecting their mom's preference more than God's feelings on the matter, especially, Which I appreciate, so I'm, I'm almost hesitant to say this because I don't want them to stop. <laughs> but it's like, it really doesn't matter to God, I'm pretty sure, whether or not their hats are on or off. Well, yeah, that's a, that's a good segue in a second to sort of uh, something else we'll talk about a little bit, kind of, you know, are these automatically bad or wrong to have? Um, and the short answer the, the, is no, not necessarily, but we'll cover that in a second. Any other rules, traditions, superstitions anyone wants to share? Gary. I sometimes will find, and it's pretty much when I'm alone in my prayer time, I think, you know, I should kneel. I want to kneel because, God, I'm showing you reverence, mm-hmm. and maybe you'll listen to me more. I almost have that kind of thought. That, okay, if I kneel, I'm, you know, and, I, and I think there's nothing wrong in, in kneeling and stuff, but my attitude towards it is, well, maybe I'll get more points if I kneel. <laughs> and, I, you know, and so, you know, sometimes I, I put a little more emphasis on kneeling than perhaps I do on the actual value of the prayer. I'm sure every parent in this room has scolded a child at least some point in time for opening their eyes during prayer at dinner. Every single person. Not folding your hand. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. We have these like magic postures that we, we like to assume sometimes. Um, and and the, the point is that we need to be careful about burdening our prayer lives with you know, rules and traditions and customs and habits that either we've made up or we've inherited from others that they have made up. Um, and, and again, you know, going back to the, the point you know, Christina was raising, it's not necessarily wrong to have a preferred method of doing something. If you like praying on your knees, pray on your knees. If you like closing your eyes, close your eyes. If you like looking up to the sky, look up to the sky. But recognize them for what they are, their preferences. And that's, that's merely all they are. And we should be careful about how we communicate those preferences. Um, if the rule in the house is no hats off, just explain why. Um, you know, that may not be something that the kids adopt when they're older and outside of the house, but at the same point in time, you know, we take the hat off because it's a sign of reverence for God, um, and that's kind of how we do that here, but, you know, it's a preference. It's not a, it's not a rule that's binding consciences in the future. Um, these things can also inadvertently lead to, to guilt or preoccupation over things that don't matter. Um, going back to my interruption thing, I mean, I prayed a lot less because I had to be alone. It negatively impacted my prayer life. Um, 
So, uh, you know, if, if you like praying with your eyes closed, cool, go nuts, more power to you. But remember, prayer is a privilege. It's an opportunity to talk to our Father. Let's not make it something other than that accidentally. Gary. Uh, besides just being a preference, sometimes we find that things help us yeah. to concentrate or be yeah. more focused. So. It's not necessarily just, I like doing this. This is helpful to me to to be kneeled or to have my eyes closed or to have music, yeah. or whatever those things may be. Yeah, that's a great point. They're not they're not inherently wrong or evil. It's 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 when we turn them into preoccupations, it's when we let them negatively impact our prayer life, it's when we start imposing them others, those sorts of things where they start becoming much more problematic. It's a good point. It's a very good point. All right. Well, thank you for the help. We're going to go on to our next one now, which is formalism. Formalism. And uh, there, there, there are two very different definitions or approaches to formalism in general. So I'm going to distinguish between the, the church definition or the church uh, use and then more of like the traditional dictionary definition in use. So if you were to look up formalism, I think you would see a definition something like, you know, excessive devotion to uh, process or procedure. A, a dictionary formalist is that stereotypical government employee who insists on the form being filled out in triplicate with the right stamps in the right order. And if you had the wrong initial or an unlegible initial in the wrong place, you go back to the line and start all over again. You know, that, that's what a, a dictionary formalist is. In the church, we don't really uh, necessarily focus so much on you know, excessive devotion uh, to, to, to process or procedure, uh, we focus more on someone who is, is going through the motion. So in the church context, a formalist is someone whose heart isn't in it, whose religion, whose walk with God is really more box checking. It's formality. It's looking like you're doing the right thing, but there's no sincerity or deliberateness in it. And obviously that has degrees. But so when we talk about formalists, we're talking about primarily that, that, that church definition. And the reason why I make the distinction is it, I don't want anyone to, to go through this conversation on formalism and think process and procedure doesn't matter. Um, God has laid out things in the word that we are supposed to be doing individually and corporately. Um, you cannot just elect yourself an elder at River City Grace, for example. There's a process for that that God has laid out. You can't unilaterally excommunicate someone in the church. Again, there's a process and a procedure for those things that God has laid out. He is a God who cares about order and structure. So we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater, but we are focusing on the engagement of our religious lives in a way that is merely box checking. That is kind of what our focus is here. Um, and one good, <clears throat> sorry, uh, one good example of that in scripture is Isaiah 29 verse 13, probably the best example. Can I get a volunteer to read that one really fast? Thanks. Therefore, the Lord said, inasmuch as these people draw near with their mouths and honor you with their lips, but have removed their hearts far from you, and their fear toward me is taught by the commandments of them. This is a classic example of religious formalism. They're checking the boxes, as it were. Uh, they say the right words, they praise, but their hearts are not in it, and their religion consists essentially of traditions learned by men. There's no, there's no sincerity behind it. Um, in um, 
Matthew 6, 5, we have another example, um, specifically in the context of prayer. There, our Lord instructing the disciples says, when you pray, this is Matthew 6, 5, you are not to be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their reward in full. Their prayer is not really about talking to God. Their prayer is really about being seen by others. Prayer is incidental to the thing that they're, they're actually doing. Um, they're doing the activity without really being engaged in the activity. So what could this look like in our lives? Well, um, using, again, myself as an example, it could look like rushing through a prayer before a meal because you know you need to thank God, but there's not really any gratitude in it. Um, How many of us, I'm not going to ask you to show your hands, this is more of a rhetorical thing, but how many of us have like a set pre-meal prayer that we kind of on occasion find ourselves rattling through? You know, same 50 or so words, 30 words, whatever it is, maybe slightly different order, but it's the same prayer. Um, uh, Praying for someone quickly and carelessly because you said you were going to do it and not because you really care about the issue um, in front of you. Um, Or um, maybe because you know that uh, three days from now you're going to attend a Bible study or a prayer meeting or a one-on-one meeting with somebody and they're going to ask you how your prayer life is. And so, so you pray. You check the box. Those sorts of things. Um, again, that's all me. Uh, any other confessions people want to make uh, that you guys have done that may look formalistic in practice that might help others? You're doing fine. <laughs> <laughs> I think the point is, Matt, I'm clear, clearly not. <laughs> Smokey, I thought I, thought I saw a hand. Well, I think it's hard to explain, but I, I can do this and it's somewhat, it's not a superstition, but it can maybe be for a formality. The order in which I pray can be become that, even though it helps me, like Gary said, if I'm not careful, um, it can be a, a formality in terms of what I pray for first, how I approach things first, is God worship first, before petitions are brought to him, um, that kind of thing. So that there can be an unnecessary formality, even though it can be helpful. Um, the other thing is um, that that's maybe you'll bring up is when we pray publicly, those prayers are formal. Mm-hmm. Um, they they should be from our hearts, of course, but they're formal for the sake of um, leading the body in prayer, rather than some chill thing we make up on the spot without a clue as to what we'll say. So it's that's an interesting context in which they're designed on purpose to minister to our own hearts and to the body just like you find written ones in books that we all love sure sure yeah i think it's a really good distinction just to try that point out um 
I know several folks, many folks in this room have uh, Catholic backgrounds. So if you do, you'd probably recognize the, um, the, the, the practice of like saying the, the Hail Mary prayer, you know, multiple times in the context of penance and probably just rattling through the words and not necessarily meaning, you know, what you're saying, you know, that's far different than in a public context, like Smokey's talking about having a written out prayer that you are sincerely praying, but you're writing it out to make sure that it covers the content that it's supposed to, that you're not uh, saying something, you know, accidental or inappropriate that you shouldn't, you know, those sorts of things. Um, It's not so much the fact that you have put structure or process to it. Again, we're not talking about process or procedure or structure being evil. We're talking about lack of sincerity or deliberateness, you know, our heart not being in it. This is merely going through a form as opposed to being formal, if that makes sense. Tim. Yeah, to accent that point too, that Isaiah twenty nine thirteen, you know, we, we should honor him with our lips. But what was wrong is it's form devoid of substance, yep. right? So substance can have careful form as long as it, it's an expression of, of, the, of where our heart is. Yeah. And it's, more kind of formalism can be in public yeah. prayers, usually it's going to be... Um, that we not not just that we're aware that we're leading others and trying to be clear, but there can be a desire to impress people yeah. with sophisticated language, and um, either in public or private, um, kind of have. I think in our circles we might be tempted to load up our prayers with enough theology <laughs> that we're kind of paying our dues. Like I know that I like look how well I know you, God, and so I can ask you these things rather than that simplicity of Matthew six. If he, he knows. He knows all this truth about himself. He knows what you need. So it's just more of a simple asking the Father for things. Okay. Those are great points as well. Great points as well. Anyone else? Christina. I just to piggyback on that. It's like so often our prayers, we can forget that we're actually talking to God. And like we're more focused on the actual words, especially when we are talking to, you know, with others around. Yeah. That we kind of, yeah. I, certainly even, you know, in our house, we're like, uh, are we trying to teach other people, or are we, <laughs> are we praying to God in this process? It's a, yeah, um, that can definitely be a, like... The, uh, the phenomenon of the prayer that is a sermon as well. Yeah, I know exactly what you mean, yeah. Um... So, so what do we do with, with formalism? I mean, how do we, I mean, so we already said, I think hopefully made very clear, it, it, you know, we don't abandon, you know, written prayers in, in, in public context. We don't, we don't avoid, uh, t- you know, um, uh, doing things. Uh, we, we, and and I, I guess maybe to state that again, we should not let our reaction to formalism result in inaction. It's not as if we sit there and say, well, I, mean, I don't feel particularly grateful in this moment, so I'm not going to thank God. Um, you know, we still we still know what our obligations are, and I would submit that a prayer of thanks with a mustard seed of gratitude and a desire for more is far more honorable than than not praying at all. Um, you know, we still do what we're supposed to do. The, the The way that we address formalism is by remembering that in our walk with God and certainly in prayer, deliberateness and sincerity is of paramount importance. Um, that what we're doing here is never, ever meant to be box checking. It's never, ever meant to be something where we're 
you know, saying we did the thing. It's it's truly about a relationship with God. It's you know, in prayer in particular, it's about um, uh, going to our Father in communication and keeping that in mind. That's why we focused on the relational aspect of prayer last week. Those things are meant to help us ward off things like formalism and legalism, which we're going to see next. But um, at the end of the day. Sincerity and deliberateness is really kind of what we need to kind of keep at the forefront of our minds to, to ward off against formalism. It's not inaction and it's not avoidance of anything that smacks a, a, a process and procedure uh, or formality. It's, it's sincerity, deliberateness. Make sense? Yay. Okay. Uh, let's go on to our third error, which is legalism. Um, probably the one that we need to say the least and the most about simultaneously. Um, legalism, as you can see in your notes, uh, is when we see our fundamental relationship or experience of God as dependent upon our performance. That's when we see the fundamental relationship or experience of God is dependent upon our performance. Uh, lots and lots of biblical examples of these, uh, going back to our friends, the Pharisees, the group of people who so believed that they were right, uh, they, sorry, who believed that they were righteous before God, so much so that they killed the Son of God when he disagreed with them, uh, are probably the poster child for legalism in the New Testament. Um, later, we see legalism creep into the church. Uh, Paul talks about the party of the circumcision in Galatians uh, 2.12. This is a group that claimed in some way, um, not super clear, but in some way claimed to accept Jesus, um, but still held that one must obey the law to be accepted by God, that the primary way in which um, we interact or relate to God is on the basis of our performance, law-keeping. If you are doing good with respect to the law, God views you as righteous and everything is good. You break the law, he views you as unrighteous, things are bad. The performance that we put forward is the fundamental basis for our relationship with God. That's the definition of legalism. And Please note, if it's not already clear, I keep emphasizing this word fundamental every time I give the definition um, because it is really important that we, we distinguish between saying that um, you know, uh, legalism is, is, this, is this view that fundamentally our relationship with God turns on our performance. That is not to say that there aren't texts in scripture that talk about God reacting to things that we do. Um, in Ephesians uh, 4.30, the spirit can be grieved by our sin. You know, Pastor Greg has been preaching through the book of Genesis for the last few months or longer than that. And as he's been doing that, he's been very clear that God is disciplining. He is working in and through people's lives in response to their actions. It is not that... Um, and so, and so making the distinction, our, our, our fundamental relationship with God is not based on our performance, that nothing could be further from the truth, but what drives God's actions towards us is his undeserved grace and his love, which you know, works everything together for our good, even our sin. Our actions are not irrelevant. They're not throwaway things that don't matter. It's not as if God doesn't deal with us as we are, you know, who we are in real time in our lives, but neither is our relationship with God based upon what we do. Both of those statements um, coexist. So in the context of prayer, um, you know, you don't have to necessarily be a Pharisee to have legalism creep into your, your, your daily life or your prayer life. Um, the Pharisee who believes in a works righteousness is, uh, you know, kind of on the extreme end, but we can all have legalistic tendencies that creep in unawares. And... Um, 
you know, one example is I can, I can believe that my sins and, and, and are forgiven in Christ and that his perfect life counts as mine, but I can still act or live my daily life as if God's disposition or feelings towards me are dependent upon how I'm living each day. That um, I can live as if the primary way in which God interacts with me is based on my performance. And if I'm doing that, then that's a form of legalism as well and a dangerous one. And I think legalism can generally impact our prayer life in two big buckets, and I put them there in your handout. Um, the first is that we can improperly tie God's hearing or answering of our prayers to our performance. Um, Matthew 6, 7, um, whoever had the previous Matthew passage, could you read that one as well? Matthew 6, 7. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And when you pray, do not use vain repetition as the heathen do, for they think that they will be heard by their many words. Oh, perfect. Thank you. So when you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition. Um, the, the Gentiles apparently had a tendency to, to verbally vomit when they pray. Uh, lots of words. They relied on their performance to get God to act as opposed to his character, disposition, or relationship with them. In the same way, we can sometimes think that God doesn't care or listen to our prayers if we have recently done something wrong. Um, I, I, there have been times in my life where I've, I've, I've committed a sin, you know, whether that's big or small is not, you know, the, the same ethic is there. Um, and then I've avoided going to God. It, it, you know, the, the picture in my head right now is more like, you know, when, when, it, when you have a dog and a dog does something wrong and it doesn't want to like, look you in the eyes? Like that's been sort of like the ethic sometimes with respect to prayer and, and, and sin. Um, now, don't get me wrong. If you are, if you are living an open, unrepentant daily sin, yes, that is going to impact your life in a lot of different ways, including your prayer life. But uh, we're talking more about this this primary inference that, as we are walk through our life, if we're if we're not doing everything just so that God is angry at us, or if we are doing things just so that God is happy with us, and there therefore He's more inclined or less inclined to answer our prayers or that we should pray when we're you know, in a better state versus when we're in a, in a poorer state. Uh, the second way is by focusing on our performance in the act of prayer. Um, this could look like uh, feeling you know, excessively or inappropriately you know, guilty or thinking that God is angry at us if we don't meet certain standards, to Sherry's point earlier, such as the length and time of prayer or um, if we're not engaging in prayer at some prescribed frequency. You know, in, the, in the Old Testament, they prayed three times a day. If I'm not doing that, I, you know, clearly God's mad at me, that sort of thing. Um, it could also look like a, a, a strong tendency to constantly evaluate our prayer life, not because we are looking to you know, draw near our Father or understand or align what we're praying for more with his wishes or preferences, but simply to make sure that we're meeting you know, the right standard to avoid uh, getting in trouble. Those are probably the two bucket category ways, and I think in which legalism can, can mostly impact our prayer life, but let's throw it out to the group. Uh, first and foremost, any disagreements with that, uh, any amens or any other ways that you see legalism potentially impacting your own prayer life? Did it make sense? Well, so, like, um, how you pray, the words you use, that you have to do it this way for it to reach God. Sure. That's a good example, too. That's a good example, too. Yeah. So 
And that's more of a question that goes along with that. Is there overlap between formalism and legalism? Because my brain is really hard to separate the two. Yeah, I think um, they are going to be probably sister errors. Um, the, the, the big distinguishing mark is is really sort of more in formalism, regardless of whatever theological positions you hold on what you're doing, you're doing it just to do it, just to check the box, just to make sure that you can you can say you did. You're not necessarily having to believe, like in a in a legalistic context, that those things drive your relationship with God. So I can check a box to avoid an unpleasant accountability conversation at church, um, but have all the right theology towards God in terms of you know uh, how my actions relate to Him. So, um, but if you are a formalist, there's a probably you know decent chance that you're probably engaging in legalism at some point in time too. And and vice versa. Does that make sense? Tim, please. You gave, I really appreciate the recommendation of being uh, And super helpful, but I've even found that studying those things can, can have kind of a paralyzing effect where when I come to pray for somebody and I've been exposed to those kinds of rich you know, studies, I, like, I, can, I can have a mindset of like, I don't want to pray too shallow for this person. I have to pray the best way I possibly can for this person. And um, I think we have perfectionistic tendency as though, you know, God will only really hear my prayers if I pray enough like Paul or whatever model I'm thinking of. So I think there's value in our own hearts being shaped by studying those prayers. But still, prayer is pouring our hearts to God. And so focus more on whatever is in our hearts rather than, um, yeah, that, like, I better, I better um, pray in a way that's, like, again, kind of theologically sophisticated enough for God. That's a good point. That's a good point. Christina? I think that so often, like, I kind of rebel against the whole legalism, formalism side of things in my own heart and mind, um, and... Not to say that there's not really good things to rebel against in that. I'm like super aware of my heart's disposition towards God mm-hmm. when I am praying, whether that is like, you know, eager to run to Him or fearful or angry or whatever else it is. And, um, and I think there's good aspects of that. Because I think that's, you know, me talking to God about all of that is a really good, and just the fact that I still go to him with my emotions yeah. is the right way to consider that because I think there's been a big like push against emotions of any form, you know, and so it's like, and then it's like, okay, so what are we doing if we are not, you know, at least with me, I didn't, I don't understand that. So I kind of like, like my emotions are certainly a part of my relationship with God. So um, that's just it. But on the other side of it, it can my prayer life can lack intentionality in that, and if I am feeling apathetic or unconcerned, then that can affect my prayer life. And so I think that I have to like even recognize that and take that to prayer as well. So I don't know if that makes any sense in that sense um, in in the context of legalism and formalism, but I think it's just like in some ways. It all goes together, but it doesn't yeah. seem to make sense. <laughs> there, there's, there's definitely some overlap. Absolutely, absolutely. And I do, I do like your your point about um, you know uh, having you know a, 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 
emotional life before God that's that's sincere too. I mean, you just I just it, it just gets away from all of those prayers in the Psalms, which are which are just robotic and completely devoid of any emotion or feeling whatsoever, right? I mean, those guys just like cyborgs. Um, clearly not. Clearly not. If you don't can't tell, I'm joking. I'm joking. Um, you know, it's a, it's a rich it's a rich emotional walkthrough, absolutely, and that's that's modeled for us. Um, all right. Anything else on the legalistic front? Does that make sense? I want to make sure that you know it's at least it's at least clear. Excellent. Okay. Silence is consent. So I'm going to keep going. Um, there, there is one. I mean, just just as we as we transition, one just quick uh, helpful point too is you know as we talk about legalism, as we talk about some of these errors, um, you know, there, there's not really any pithy single simple thing you can do. Um, our hearts will always be inclined to some form of works based approach to God. It's just sort of baked into. Um, fallen sinful nature. In fact, you look at, you know, do a, do a survey of world religions outside of Christianity and they're all works-based in some way, shape, or form. So chances are that's going to be the natural disposition of our hearts. But, you know, if, if I had to leave you with one, you know, single sentence or concept, I think as we struggle with legalism, as we see legalism impact our prayer life or any other part of our, of our walk with Christ, um, you know, the, the, the issue with legalism is you, you have to be self-deluded. You have to delude yourself. You have to either reduce God's standard or you have to elevate your own performance. You can't have a high standard and an accurate view of self because those things will always expose just how bad you are. Um, we have to own our depravity and that's that. You know, as we do that, as we as we kind of look and see unvarnished, unwhitewashed, un unfiltered, just how depraved and uh, disinclined towards God that we are. You know, there's only two solutions: despair or reaching out with grace with both hands. There's the only two real possible solutions. And obviously, we do the second one. Um, you know, Jonathan Edwards has that great quote. You know, the the only thing that you contributed to your salvation is the sin that made it necessary. In the same way, you know, we need to recognize that we are only heard by God in prayer because of the grace that we have in Jesus. Our only hope for prayer in this life is the performance of Jesus, not ours. His sinless life, his substitutionary death, that's the performance upon which we depend on when God, when we go to God in prayer. Now, our next error, sorry for the abrupt transition, but our next error is hyper-Calvinism. Um, and, and this is really just an excessive emphasis on the sovereignty of God, an excessive ep- emphasis on the sovereignty of God. Uh, a hyper-Calvinist is someone who leans so heavily on the fact that God is sovereign that they tend to ignore or reject on the extreme end that God works through means, that he works through things like prayer. Um, someone with hyper-Calvinist tendencies is more likely to not pray than to pray. Uh, they, they would do so not because they don't uh, uh, view prayer as... It's not because they don't believe God answers prayers. This isn't like a, a, a deistic thing. Um, they don't believe that God can't do what they're asking for. But it's more of a, well, if you know God wants it to happen, it's going to happen. And so whether I pray or not is, you know, it's not the most important thing. If I neglect to do it, it's not like it throws God's plan off. He's still going to have the thing be done. And so prayer is just sort of deprioritized or minimized or made less necessary. Um, 
Of course, it very much matters if we pray. If it didn't matter, and I don't mean to blow anyone's mind here, we wouldn't be told to pray a thousand times in the New Testament. You know, we're told to pray because God, because, because prayer matters, because the way that God orchestrates and, 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 and uh, exercises his sovereignty is through means, including our prayer life. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. I'll read that one. It's uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 8 to 11. This is Paul talking about some of the affliction that he has gone through. And he says, I- I- We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, which we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from so great a peril of death and will deliver us. He on whom we have set our hope. Um, And then he says there in verse 10, he will yet deliver us. You also joining in helping us through your prayers so that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the favor bestowed on us through the prayers of many. Our prayers are not meaningless. They are part of God, a part of God's plan, and how how and how He He rules, ordains, um, and 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 governs creation. He ordains both the ends and the means, and prayer is part of how He governs the universe. Um, we read Matthew six seven a little while ago. When you're praying, don't use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do. But we didn't read verse eight. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. The Father knows what we need, and yet we're supposed to ask. Prayer is not perfunctory. Prayer is not a, a nice thing to do on occasion. It is, it is meant to be baked in to our lives as believers. Um, Hyper-Calvinism is an error that's pretty easy to identify. Um, it's usually, again, manifested in a general lack of prayer or in a general sense of urgency about prayer. Uh, now, Hypercalvism is not the same thing as neglectfulness in prayer, which is where we're going to go next, so I'll make that distinction in a second. But any questions on hypercalvinism as a concept or what it would look like in practice? Smokey. Um, so part of it, it's, it seems like there's not a recognition of the... Um, Bible's clear teaching about our volition, which, because that's not there, it doesn't lead to confession for our sins um, and the need for help. The other thing, maybe you'll touch on this, but some of the stuff we read in the midst of being wonderful is ludicrous. Um, Like if you're not a praying person, you're not a Christian, which we have in a pamphlet in, in our church. And I think that's a horrible example of a, a, um, a thing to say. I don't know exactly where you'd categorize it, but um, it, here comes the guilt in, a, in an extremely strong way. And... That's I don't even, I don't know what um, category, but you've seen those kinds of books and, or um, pamphlets, and they can be devastating. 
Yeah, I would. I mean, if I had to pick one of these seven, I'd probably put it in the legalist camp. But it is a good reminder that um, this is not an exhaustive treatment on how we can mess up prayer. Uh, our our own souls are just a, a, a wonderful, um, endless pit of ways that we can uh, avoid the truth, suppress the truth, reject the truth. There's uh, there's no end to it. Um, these just tend to be some of the most common that I think in general, but. It's certainly not the, the end-all, be-all. Um, all right, uh, Willie. Did you already define Calvinism? I didn't. Um, Calvinism, you know, essentially being the, uh, the, the belief in um, the, 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 the fact that we are uh, entirely depraved by nature, that our salvation is entirely owing to God's grace, that we um, can do nothing apart from that grace. We cannot exercise faith before uh, being born again. It's a, it's a, a, a system of, of theology that's, that's really focused on the importance and the primariness of the sovereignty of God without compromising human responsibility. So basically, uh, with the fact we have free will? It's not taking away the fact that we have free will. It's it's recognizing that in everything that occurs, God is ultimately in control, but that that control still works through responsible moral agents. So I, um, before I came to Christ, w- always did the things that I wanted to do. I, I sinned the way I wanted to sin. I lived the way that I wanted to live. Um, I was incapable of choosing God, I was incapable of turning towards him, but I always did what I wanted to do and was held accountable for it. And before I came to saving faith, God sovereignly gave me new life, regenerated me, and out of that I, I believed, as opposed to um, my faith originating from myself or some completely unfettered, uninfluenced choice, if that makes sense. And if that doesn't, really don't have time to do a whole lot more on the subject, please, I happily talk about it afterwards. Um, maybe a poor choice of term in, uh, uh, for this one for me. But um, let's move on. I apologize. Uh, let's go to the next issue, which is sort of hyper-Calvinism's um, twin, uh, neglectfulness. So if hyper-Calvinism is, the neglect, is, is, is not praying because of an excessive belief in the sovereignty of God, uh, uh, neglectfulness is lack of prayer for reasons other than being a hyper-Calvinist. Um, it's kind of a, of a catch-all bucket. Um, you know, and, and some of these things I, I, I think might resonate. Uh, this would be not praying because you had a period of time in which you were uh, deep in prayer and and didn't seem to get your prayer answered um, or kept getting a no on something that was sensitive um, over and over and over and over again and maybe you don't see the point anymore or you are questioning whether or not God uh, answers prayer or answers your prayer in particular um, you may not pray, not because of some you know, traumatic experience, but because it just isn't a priority to you. You're all about the word of God and singing and community and prayer is sort of like that fourth thing that you do on occasion. Um, or maybe you do pray. It's just really, really limited. It's limited to uh, those things that you care about personally that affect you, you know, spouse, kids, job, that sort of thing. But that's the extent of your prayer life. That is also a form of neglect. 
Um, a neglectful person doesn't prioritize prayer necessarily. They're not necessarily someone who's really deliberate about it. They may engage in it very limitedly. Um, and this can manifest in the corporate sense as well, which some folks have made comments throughout, you know, most of these errors, you know, I'm primarily talking about private prayer life, but all this stuff applies to corporate as well. But neglect in prayer, I think, um, deserves a special mention as it relates to private and corporate prayer life. Because you can be just a, a personal prayer warrior, if I can use that term, and completely neglectful in the corporate sense. Um, you can have almost like a, a schizophrenic sort of uh, 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 dichotomy in your, your personal prayer life and your corporate prayer life. Um, we can, uh, you know, pray a lot on our own, but completely neglect prayer. That uh, completely neglect prayer with our family, for example. Um, that could be, you know, not praying ever with one's spouse or never with praying with one's children. Um, there have been periods in my life where I have really only engaged my family in prayer around the context of a meal or a special occasion or a big decision. Um, more often than I would care to admit, more frequently than I care to admit. Um, that's a, a form of neglect of prayer as well. Um, and then in the corporate body sense, outside of one's family, um, you know, we can, we can deprioritize or not attend corporate prayer meetings. Um, it, it, or maybe you're attending, but uh, we, we never offer up prayer requests about ourselves or about our needs. Um, we're kind of silent on those sorts of things. Now, please don't misunderstand. I'm not saying you have to attend every single church function and you've got to raise your hand every single time. That's not the takeaway. That's not a, it's, not, it's not a list of to-dos. I'm really talking more about ways in which neglect can manifest. This is a heart issue, um, and it's something that we would need to sort of self-evaluate, you know, what our disposition is. Are we not attending those meetings uh, for, 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 you know, uh, because we don't care, because we don't see the value in it, or are we not attending those meetings for, for something more, more legitimate? And, and sincere. I mean, it's, it's a hard issue. Everyone has to sort of decide where they're at necessarily, but again, not a hard and fast rule, but you can be neglectful in personal prayer, you can be neglectful in familial prayer, and you can be neglectful in corporate prayer either entirely or in some combination of those things. So just because you are a great corporate prayer or a really great uh, a devoted individual prayer does not mean that you are not uh, you are automatically exempt from having to decide whether or not you're neglecting prayer in other aspects. Does that make sense? Questions, comments, or concerns on this one? Confessions. Well, I think a lot of these things obviously are just all wrong. Our, our um, exposure of our wrong thinking, right? And so, I mean, I think of myself when I neglect prayer. I'm, I'm finding more recently, especially with things going on with my dad, I am very neglectful in prayer for people that I think that there's no way God's going to save them, right? <laughs> yeah. It's like I'm more apt to pray for Greg's dad than my my own dad. Sure. And it's really it's been really interesting to me the way that I've neglected to pray for my dad because of unbelief that, of course, I know God can save anybody, right? But it, it, there's an unbelief there. And so it's just I'm, I'm recognizing some of these pitfalls start with wrong thinking. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point. And it's a, a really good example of neglect. Gary, I think you had a hand up. Yeah, well... I have a whole lot of thought. <laughs> um, 
Oh, one, 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 you talk about corporate prayer, um, even in our in our gatherings, when there's one person praying, mm -hmm. you can be totally checked out. <laughs> and, and Never that's that meant, it's meant to be praying along with, and, yeah. and, and, and that's, well, that kind of dovetails with what Smokey said about kind of the formality of prayer. There, those prayers are kind of designed for us all to enter into them together. Yeah. And uh, so that's one. One. <laughs> I'll give a couple. <laughs> um, and there's sometimes we just don't feel like praying. We don't feel like talking to anybody. We don't. And, and mm -hmm. so there's kind of the thought. Well, what do you do in those times? Sure. And, and, uh, and, and I, I, those are the times maybe we need to pray the most. <laughs> Sure, sure, sure. I think prayer, one thing that prayer does, it, it, it helps us to align our hearts to God's desires yeah. and, uh, uh, in conjunction with taking in God's word. Yeah. Of course, the truth. That come. Uh, I'll leave it at that. I've got five more. But, uh, <laughs> You're an elder. You can email afterwards. It's fine. Um, but it's it's a, it's a very good point though too, and, and 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 you know the last thing that Gary said just maybe uh, 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 warrants additional words. Um, you know, th there is some wisdom as to who you share what prayer requests with. Um, so it's it's not like you're indiscriminately telling every single person who walks through these doors every single thing. Um, you know, there is some some wisdom to that. But again, heart issue. You know, are you you're not raising your hand uh, for, you know, um, um, because you, you just. It's not a priority to have people praying for you because it's just not, you know, not something that is that's really kind of front and center heart and mind, or is there another reason why, you know, you're not raising a hand in a particular context? Again, heart issue, something for us to individually evaluate, but neglect is real, um, and um, whether it's out of a theological issue or laziness or past trauma or some combination of them, it's something that we all have to be aware of and guard against, and probably the most prevalent issue of this list for us. Last comment, and we got to move on. Sorry. Um, well, uh, I think... <laughs> sorry, my husband's um, But um, the, the disposition of our heart, maybe this is my, like, weakness or stupidity in it, in the sense of, like, like what is prayer, when it says we pray without ceasing, we talk about, like, all the things, the ways we can mess up prayer, but, like, in my mind and heart, and maybe this is my liberally giving myself too much grace, it's like... When I pray, it could just simply be my recognition that God is here with me in, in this moment. And so it's my openness to recognizing that he's here. It's not, it doesn't even have to have words to that in my prayers, but just the, I feel like sometimes with prayer, we see it as like an opening and closing off communication with God, which, or communion with God, or I don't know what Howard Biden gets, that's, you know, I get my, my like, but like, you know, the, it's really like disposition at least that's how I feel. Like, am I am I recognizing that God is here at this moment with me, and that my thought, he, he knows my heart, He knows my thoughts, and I can embrace that reality in the process. And so, that, to me, that looks very much different than like my concerted, intentional prayers. But it's also it flows into like every you know aspect of my life, and so our every moment of my day. And so, if I'm not defining prayer that way. <laughs> so I just like does it you know it's like is it all prayer and 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 then you know it's like really are we just cutting off communication with God when we're not in prayer 
And does that change who he is, or does it pretty much changes our understanding of who he is? I mean, for the purpose of the class, we are we're defining prayer um, as communication to God, whether that's you know verbal or not. You know, thoughts in head count as well. I think there is a distinction between having an intentional place where you're sort of pouring out yourself to God, uh, to, to paraphrase Tim's words, versus sort of just living uh, uh, with the, the knowledge that God is is there. You know, living coram deo. Um, and so there is, a, I think, a distinction between sort of an awareness of God's presence and relationship and then the communicative aspect of, of that as well. Um, probably some experiential blending of them. Um, I, I, I don't want to be overly prescriptive on that, but I do think if what we're simply doing is recognizing that God is you know, here in the room with us right now and likes us and loves us, um, but there's no communicative element to it, that probably isn't prayer. So I guess I, I, the reason why I say that is because often my prayers to him are like, God, I don't know what to even think sure. or feel or sure. say in this moment. Sure. But I know you are here and you are caring for me. And like, and I know, like, it's it's still, like, to me, it's like that time, even if I don't have anything to give to it, sure. yeah. it's still prayer because yeah. of my acknowledgement of his active work in me I, and I, for me in that process. Based on, based on that. Yeah, I, I don't think we have disagreement. All right. Sorry. Got to move on. <laughs> That's fine. No, we have uh, we have uh, two more, and I will go through these relatively quickly. Um, this one, totally made-up term, um, struggled with how to define it, but um, called it charismania. Um, and, and really, uh, I picked it because it's kind of memorable. The, the word really just means you know craziness with respect to spiritual gifts. Um, but what I'm really getting at here is a range of errors with respect to prayer, all centered around believing that God speaks to us when we pray. Um, communication. Uh, I'm sorry. We defined prayer last week as communication to God. Um, it is not God talking to us. And I suspect most people in the room probably don't hear an audible voice uh, talking back to them when they pray. So we're not really talking about that. We're really talking more about uh, sort of the impressions that one gets uh, in the context of prayer. Um, I won't ask you to show hands, but I'm willing to bet most folks would resonate with at least one of these examples. Um, you're praying for guidance, uh, maybe about a work situation or whatever, kids, doesn't matter what it is, and you feel a moment of clarity about what to do. It's an immediate, oh, I get it, I should do this. Um, maybe you're wrestling with a difficult passage. Um, you cannot figure out for the life of you how these words connect. You pray for, pray about it, and you have, you have a eureka moment. You just, you just get it. Um, maybe you're, you're praying for your neighbor's salvation, your dad's salvation, whatever it happens to be. And in the context of doing it, you feel uh, either the thought pops into your head, irrespective of feeling, or you feel strongly about, I need to go evangelize that person. I need to go tell that person about the gospel. Um, maybe you're, you're praying for something. Uh, it's entirely unrelated, but all of a sudden there's a strong you know, thought or feeling, like maybe you're praying for your family and you get this, this urge to, to, to start a Bible study or something along those lines. Um, some, some impression, something strong that comes through in the context of prayer. How, I will ask you a sense. How many people know what I'm talking about? How many people have experienced something along those lines over the years? Okay. Fair number of hands. It's, it's, it's a fairly common experience. When I was a new believer, I struggled with those a lot. Um, 
I definitely recall times where I was confused about a passage, uh, you know, prayed about it, had that eureka moment, um, and then I had to stop and ask myself, was that was that God answering my prayer in that moment? Um, because answering that question is really, really important. Because if we were to say that, yes, that was God answering that prayer, I didn't know what the passage meant, and all of a sudden he told me what it meant, we just have a new authoritative interpretation of the Bible, people. I mean, that's what that essentially means at that point. I would have a moral obligation, I would think, to believe that regardless of what else comes up, no matter how many commentaries are written on the subject otherwise. I'd have an obligation if I'm up here teaching or preaching something to put that interpretation forward. If someone were to say something other than that in the context of a Bible study or community group, I need to tell them, no, God told me this is, this is, the, this is what the passage says. You know, if, if we depending on how we answer the question on how we interpret those impressions, there are consequences to it. Um, if you were you know, talking to um, you know, someone from the, the Mormon church, uh, an LDSer, um, there's, a, there's a theological position in that, in that group about this whole thing. Um, they call it the, the still small voice, and those impressions, you need to act on them. That's the Holy Spirit. And if, if, if you don't, you're in danger of, of quenching the Holy Spirit. It, 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 it puts a tremendous emphasis on that. And for the sake of time, I just need to summarize and say, that's nonsense. These, these thoughts and these impressions that come up in the context of prayer, we, we cannot say that they are you know, automatically God doing something. Um, um, we need to be careful that we don't let our emotions, feelings, random thoughts that pop into our head turn into our God, which is what you know, zealous devotion to those things results in. In Acts uh, 17, 11, Paul is preaching um, at the church of Berea, or sorry, the, the city of Berea, and we read the classic words, now those, uh, these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And if the Bereans were commended for listening to an apostle and checking against checking what he said against the word of God, we also need to be very careful and critically examine and scrutinize the things that pop into our heads. It's not automatically something that came from God. Sometimes you, you do pray and sometimes you have, you know, epiphany moment and sometimes that turns out to be, you know, right or accurate and that's, that's fine, cool, praise God for when those things happen. But um, we need to not make the mistake of taking those things as if they were God talking to us in prayer. There are consequences. I've seen those wreck people's lives. Um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a dangerous thing to do to make that assumption. Um, simply because in the context of prayer, something pops into our heads, we feel really strongly about it, we feel excited about it, whatever. Um, do not make the mistake of attributing that automatically as if it were God speaking to us. I'm rushing through that, I know. I'm sure there's questions, Tim. Go ahead. <laughs> you sure? All right. If that's not clear to folks, I will happily make myself available afterwards, um, but hopefully it is. All right, this last one... Um, yeah, we'll go through quick as well. This last one, uh, entitled Nonsense Prayers, um, it's not nonsense because of the content of what you're saying, it's nonsense because of the form of it. Meaning, a nonsense prayer is, is, is one where someone calls something they are doing prayer, but it is anything but prayer. Um, so you're not actually praying, but you're, you're saying that you are. Um, the, the text I put in your notes is Luke 18, 9 to 14. Um, <laughs> 
If you don't have the 1995 New American Standard Version, you're probably not going to have this exact translation. Um, but I, I do think this is probably the best way of rendering it. So I'm going to read it really fast. Uh, if you're using the ESV, it's going to be it's going to be different. Um, and there are a couple of different ways of translating it, but I think I think this is most faithful to the original. Uh, this is Jesus telling a parable about um, two people: uh, one who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and uh, viewed others with contempt. And so in verse uh, 10, we read, Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And in verse 11, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. God, I thank you that I'm not like other people, swindlers, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Um, the Pharisee stood and was praying this to himself. He looked like he was praying. He had all the hallmarks of someone who was praying, but really he was just talking to himself. He was doing something that looked like prayer, but really, really wasn't. And in our modern day and age, there are uh, a boatload of examples of these. Now, 10 years ago, this was prayer chains. Um, this was uh, the email you'd get from somebody who would either have some sort of theological content or and something, often it'd be a prayer, and then there would be some sort of request for you to forward this to every single contact that you had, uh, usually with some sort of like guilt-based motivation to do so. You know, if you, if you really believed in Jesus, you would send this, or, or all, all true Christians will send this to everybody and their, 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 their contacts, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, if you if you got that and you sat down and you prayed that content to God, you prayed. If you got that and you emailed it, you weren't praying, you were emailing. There's a, there's a difference between those two things. Now, I haven't seen a prayer chain in a long time. Maybe I've just kind of fallen out of those circles. Um, but the new, more modern version of prayer chains is prayers on social media. I think that's kind of like the new frontier. Um, a prayer chain with a grandparent, this is the parent. Um, this would be, you know, someone has a Facebook post, and instead of commenting, you type out a prayer. Um, now, again, is that wrong? Is that bad? No, it's not wrong. It's not bad. Um, if you typed out a prayer, did you necessarily just pray something? No, not unless you actually communicated that to God. Me writing something is not a prayer. Me talking to God is praying. Um, in the same vein, uh, <laughs> The other, the other sort of uh, category that I see, um, if, if posting on social media is the parent, then typing amen to prayers on social media is, is, the, is the grandchild. Um, if someone were to, if you, if you stumble, stumble across that Facebook post and, and I typed out a prayer and you read it and you, you know, typed an amen, that is not the same thing as actually praying that to God yourself. Um, amen is not the ditto button. Um, that's not really how that works. To, to Gary's point earlier about corporate prayer, if you are you know, completely disengaged in the context of corporate prayer, and at the very end you, you know, wake up and say amen, it doesn't count. It doesn't count. It's not the same thing. Um, you know, at the end of the day, um, prayer is not a magical act. It's not an incantation. Um, it, you know, I can I can read a book in front of my dad and not be talking to my dad. Um, intentionality matters, and I think where we want to end this morning and this class is is on the words again that prayer is a privilege. It's a it's a privileged grace to be able to talk to our Father, the Sovereign God of this universe. And, you know, these, these sorts of nonsense prayers, uh, you know, it, it, again, it's not wrong to post something on Facebook. 
but uh, you know, thinking that you're engaging in prayer has the, the sad tendency to, to cheapen the privilege that prayer is. Um, we should not reduce prayer to something other than what it is, which is, again, just this, this un, unthinkable, glorious grace that we get to enter into whenever we want on the basis of what Christ did. Questions, comments, concerns, rejoinders, rebuttals, anything? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to go through, again, these areas in our lives in which prayer can be cheapened or or muddled or confused or otherwise negatively impacted. We want, Lord, to make our relationship with you in the context of both the word of God and prayer to be one of sincerity, to be one of of earnestness, to be one that is entirely dependent on your grace and the the glorious work of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. I pray that you would use this time, use this whole series to dust out the cobwebs on our time in the word and our time in prayer that you would uh, be glorified in our renewed passion, zeal, and commitment to you through these means that you have given us. In Jesus' name, amen.